Now, if you will uh, follow along with me as we look at God's word, we are continuing our sermon series. We started last week in the book of Genesis, going all the way back to the beginning. Follow along now. This is an extended section, (laughs) so bear with me. But follow along now as we hear God's word, starting at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under that expanse from the waters that were above that expanse. And it was so. And God called that expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called that dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation Plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the great, greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is God's holy word. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do now ask that as we come to your word, that you would meet with us, that you would speak with us, 
that even these words that were written many thousands of years ago would be brought to new life in our hearts and our minds and our souls that we might know that we have met with the one who has words of eternal life, Jesus. Because after all, at the end of the day, Jesus, it is you who we need to hear from. (laughs) Certainly not the one speaking into the mic. And so I ask Jesus now that you would use me. I pray that you would work through me. I pray that you would work around me, in spite of me, whatever is necessary, Jesus, but that we might know we have genuinely met with the one who has the words of eternal life. Jesus, we pray these things for your sake. Amen. Well, last week we began this sermon series in the book of Genesis, and we said by way of introduction that Genesis was the first installment of a five-volume set or a constitution that Moses gave to God's people at a very specific time when they were on the verge of entering the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. And we further noted last week that even as much of a transitional and uncertain time that that had to have been for those people, just wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, coming to a new place, new questions, having to say goodbye to the only leader that they had known. Nevertheless, both God's faithfulness to them and their mission as his people to be a blessing to their neighbors in this new place, both of those realities remain intact. Very similar to new city situation right now. Yes, a time of transition, some uncertainty, yes. But nevertheless, nevertheless, God's sovereign faithfulness remains intact for you, as does your mission and your vision to be a blessing to Palm Bay and to intentionally be a part of what is Jesus' desire, and that's to see Palm Bay made new by the gospel and that others may come to be followers of Jesus as well. Now this morning, I want to quickly further say by way of introduction that the way I'm going to approach this sermon series, there are many ways we could approach it, is to primarily follow the thrust of the text of Genesis as given out of the original and intentional pastoral concerns that Moses certainly had at this time for this particular people. You see, it can be our default drive, and actually it's very easy, To just use the Bible to try to make it say what we want it to say. (laughs) Theologians of all persuasions and lay people alike, all of us are prone to do that. And so as we intentionally take that approach, I would invite us to keep something in mind that's necessary whenever we're studying the Bible. It's a hermeneutic principle. Hermeneutic means just an appropriate way to study the Bible. Here's a principle that I think we should keep in mind, especially in Genesis, that the book of Genesis, written by Moses, of course, as God's word is profitable, and so it's for us sitting here today in the 21st century. It wasn't written to us sitting here in the 21st century. It was written to a specific 
people. It had certain pastoral concerns in mind. God was caring very intentionally and purposefully for a particular people. God and his authors were not writing in a vacuum. They wrote with purpose and intention. And so if we're going to be faithful to the authority of Scripture and how Genesis in particular serves and speaks to us today as God's people, we should be careful to read and hear it in the way it was originally intended to the original audience to the degree that we can and do that before we begin to make application to our own present-day situation. And so, for instance, whereas if Genesis were written today as a modern 21st century scientific textbook, we would be right to ask lots of, to look for lots of answers to questions we might have scientifically today. We would be right to do so. But this morning, I want us to see that in general, we could see that the first few Genesis especially are really not as much interested in the how questions as the why questions. More on that in just a bit. Kind of keep that there at the front of your head or the back of your head, wherever you keep it. In sum, we will do our best to read God's word with his original intentional communicative purpose in mind that he had when he spoke through Moses to his Older Testament people. So, onward we go. (laughs) Genesis 1. Looking at the first six, actually more specifically the first five and a half days of the creation week. Last week, if you recall, we also noted that there's no apologetic here right at the beginning about the existence of God. The people of the ancient Near Eastern world in which Israel lived were not asking whether gods existed. (laughs) For Israel, what mattered to them as a people who had been enslaved for 400 years and now had just finished wandering nomadically for 40 years, what was on their minds was how their God, Yahweh, fit into the big picture and where he stood in comparison to the other nation's deities. And also how they, Israel, how they as a peasant people, far behind culturally from all the surrounding nations, fit into his plans, into God's plans. And so with that in mind, One of the first things that an Israelite would have gleaned from Genesis 1 is that Yahweh, our God, seems to be clearly communicating that he is in a class all by himself when it comes to other ancient Near Eastern gods and apparently doesn't even consider himself to have any rivals. Perhaps you might already know, perhaps you even read some, that there were several competing stories and narratives about the beginning times and what we call cosmologies from various people groups in the ancient Near Eastern world. The Gilgamesh is one of these. And the Israelites would have likely been familiar with them, and Moses for sure, 
being trained by the best educators and scholars of the day in the house of Pharaoh in Egypt would certainly have been aware of all these other narratives, all these other cosmologies. How did we get here? Where did we come from? And in all those other narratives, all those other stories, we see that it's often acts of war and violence by which the earth and humanity actually come into existence. But the history that Moses narrates here is strikingly different. And so whereas there certainly are some similarities to those other accounts, what really stands out about this particular account is how it stands in contrast (laughs) to all those other stories. You see, instead of creation coming about due to violence or anger or boredom of the gods or their tiredness or simply their accidents, Genesis says that there was actually thought and intention and purpose to creation. And that Yahweh created simply out of a desire to share himself and his goodness and even his blessing with creatures that he makes. In other words, according to Moses, this cosmos wasn't simply the remains of some carcass of some terrible beast that you would have read elsewhere. Humanity wasn't created because the gods were simply lazy and needed some hired hands to do all their work, as you would have heard it elsewhere. Now Moses was writing to communicate to Israel that their God is not a God who is just simply bored. He was not angry. (laughs) He wasn't tired. Nor was simply creation a byproduct or an accidental product of some of his other actions. Unlike why the other narrative suggests the gods created, Yahweh had nothing to gain by creating. Nothing. God wasn't lonely. (laughs) He didn't need help. And so the act of creation from the very beginning, we can say, was simply an act of self-giving on behalf of our God. That Israel's God, the God of the Bible, gave, created out of his love, out of his generosity, to share his goodness with something other than himself. But this narrative is also different in the fact that To do the very act of creation, the God of Israel, Yahweh, (laughs) simply spoke. Just spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. (laughs) Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. And it was so. That's power. (laughs) To simply speak. That's power. I think one of the most powerless experiences, feelings I've ever had was parenting young children. 
When they were little, my boys were little, I would speak instructions to them. And often when I did, it meant absolutely nothing. There were times it was like I didn't even exist. And the doctors had said they are not deaf. We did the sound test. We did the hearing test. They were not deaf. Little human beings, not even half my size, completely dismissing my words. (laughs) Powerless. But not so with Yahweh. See, God separates the rivers. We see him separating rivers and lakes and oceans from the land. We see him putting planets and stars in place simply by speaking. That was definitely different from all the other narratives that were out there about how we got here. And on top of that, he even took a very careful and intentional and purposeful approach to creating. That's what the rhythm and the pattern of the days of creation demonstrate that you would have heard as I was reading. And that pattern, that rhythm, is also one of the most striking features about the literary structure here in Genesis. First, there's a pattern of the stages of separation. The light and the darkness are separated and distinguished. The waters in the heavens and atmosphere above are separated from the waters below. The waters below are separated from the land. Next we see in days that, that days one, two, and three are about God making room for that which he creates on days four, five, and six. On day one, light and darkness is separated and its corresponding day four counts God appointing specific bodies to be in charge of that space and in fact ruling over the day and over the night. On day two, God creates the skies and the clouds full of water above and the water below and then on day five, he fills the sky with birds and he fills the sea with fish. Day three accounts God separating the land from the seas and the oceans and the lakes. And on day six, God fills that land with living creatures. There are, of course, more patterns as well. We don't have time to know, but I'm sure you've either likely noticed there or you are familiar with already. But remember the point I made earlier about the how versus the why questions? Whereas science is more concerned about answering all of our how questions, Moses and Genesis and God often seems to want to, more often than not, answer our why questions. These particular first chapters of Genesis especially primarily answer those why questions. And perhaps that is most profoundly seen in the creation on day four when God creates the heavenly bodies. You see, whereas Israel would have been under the impression based on all the other creation narratives that those heavenly bodies were themselves deities. That's what they would have heard. That's what they would have been told. Yahweh is claiming something different. (laughs) And lest you and I doubt that God and his authors have a sense of humor, notice the subtle irony of how God's act of creating the stars, you know, those billions and billions of gassy, who's a scientist here, you can explain it better than I can, 
all that's happening. Notice how it's described. At the end of verse 16, it reads, God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. (laughs) It's almost an afterthought. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. God made those two. (laughs) And here, in the making of those heavenly bodies, we get a really big why question answered in verse 14. There it says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons or appointed times and for days and for years. Israel is being told that far from being deities and other competing gods, all of the heavenly beings were created by God to enable humans to properly and regularly acknowledge and celebrate who Yahweh was. That's why they're there. This is before clocks. <laughs> this is before phones. God is telling his people, I want you to use these heavenly bodies I'm putting in place so that you might regularly mark your, they didn't have a calendar, but I'm just saying, mark your calendar so that you can regularly remember me, remember our relationship. As my Old Testament professor, Dr. Jack Collins says, rather than being deities whom humans must serve, these entities exist to serve humans, helping them direct their adoration to the maker of all. That's why they are there. That's why he made them. But there's even more going on than simply establishing God's power and his sovereignty over creation in this passage. Because as you also hear God speaking words of benediction, of blessing over his creation, Moses tells us that God specifically blesses the creatures that he makes. And he also observes over and over, it is good. It is good. Next week, we'll see God observe it is very good. What is God doing here? He's enjoying his work. He's enjoying his creation. He's delighting in the wonder and the beauty that he has made. And just like you and I do when we stand before the snow-capped mountains or perhaps better, closer to home, the sunrise over the ocean or when we stand before a beautiful painting, or we hear that song that resonates deep in our heart, anything that's beautiful that captures our attention, this is what God is doing. We know that feeling. God is delighting in the beauty that he's made. Now, we, we live in a time where absolute, what I would call absolute naturalism and scientific materialism would like to tell us that the only thing that really is is what you and I can see and observe and measure. And furthermore, all that we experience at the end of the day is simply just a chemical or physical reaction that occurs within us solely to proliferate our species, if we were to narrow it down. 
But I would make the case this morning, even if you were here this morning and not yet a believer, follower of Jesus, I would make the case that even though that's the conclusion of so much of science today, not all science, science itself is not bad, am I still on? But the extreme of what I call absolute naturalism, I would make the case that you don't actually live your life as if that's true. You see, on the one hand, although Genesis 1's purpose is not necessarily to address our particular 21st century scientific questions as much as we want it to, it actually provides a basis on which science itself can operate at all. Because without order in the universe, without some kind of predictability, science can't even function. And so Genesis 1 does tell us why science works, but it tells us a whole lot more than that. Genesis 1 claims and confirms that what is happening when you and I are in the presence of something that our senses take profound delight in is actually much more than simply chemical synapsing between multiple neurons in our heads. Empirical science contributes much to our understanding of the world we live in, but it makes a terrible poet and romantic. Imagine when I am reunited with Jen over the Thanksgiving holidays after being away for several weeks. I say to her this, ready? Jen, I want you to know that I am happy to be back with you. And that when I look at you and when I'm with you, I am cognizant of, and you need to know, that there are neurons currently firing in my brain and there are chemical and hormonal reactions in my physical body now that we are back together. And all of that is is for the proliferation of our homo sapien species. And I just think we should acknowledge and celebrate that observation. (laughs) She will tell me to go back to Palm Bay (laughs) and get help before I return again. Because again, I would make the case this morning, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or still wondering whether these things can be believed, you know in your heart, there is more to this life, to this world, than simply scientific processes. There is an echo of order in creation. There is an echo of purpose. There is genuine beauty that we have visceral reactions to when we encounter it because just Possibly, (laughs) the wonder and the beauty and the goodness was actually put there intentionally at the very beginning by a good God. Now, I am sure it is not likely that you have rival narratives of the ancient Near Eastern world in your head (laughs) about this world and cosmology in your life, but I would bet you do have other narratives in your head. Narratives and words of not benediction, but narratives and words you're carrying around with you, you've carried around with you for a long time of malediction. Narratives and words from people important to you, either now or from your past. Narratives in your head that you find it hard to sometimes shake. And they're power to, powerful narratives that they drive your decision. They're so powerful that even now they're driving your decisions. How you interact with other people. How 
your perception of your surroundings is shaped, often in ways we're not even aware of. For many of us, over enough time, we're actually able to push those narratives to the back of our minds, but they still show up from time to time. My friends, what you long to hear this morning is that there might be a good creator who was powerful, who was good, who knows good stuff when he sees it, who speaks benediction over you, to speak blessing over you, to delight in you. And here's the good news of the gospel. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, if your hope and faith is in the one who Paul says in the New Testament in Colossians was before all things, by whom all things were created, and in whom all things still hold together, that's exactly what you have right now. Even though the other narratives in your head continue to compete to drown out that message. In fact, here is the narrative that this creator, Yahweh, your God, wants us to know as your creator and your redeemer. This is from Zephaniah 3. There God says, the prophet says, fear not. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will, hear this, rejoice over you. With gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. (laughs) Close with this. Yesterday, I decided to wake up a little early. Earlier. And go watch the sunrise. Seeing the sun come up over the distant ocean at the beach seems to be one of the local perks of living here, I I understand. When I got there, there were already a lot of people there. Some were standing, some were sitting, walking around, talking. Many of them already had their cameras or their phones out. All of them there to watch the sunrise. And then just to the right of me, I noticed a young man and his little daughter walk up to the front of the beach, get close to the water. And he too had a camera. And his little girl was there and they had made it just in time, just as the sun was really starting to make its bright appearance. And so he had pulled out his camera and he's taking pictures. His little girl, however, was not there for the sunrise. (laughs) She was there to run around and to dance, and to play, and to sing. And I noticed the dad from time to time. Take a picture of the sunrise. But then his little girl would catch his attention, and he would turn and he would take pictures of his little girl. And a smile came on his face. And he'd go back, take the picture of the sun, and then come back here and take pictures of his little girl. For him capturing what his little girl was doing, as she simply enjoyed being in his presence, in that beautiful space, was just as important, if not more so to him, (laughs) than getting the pictures of the sun, which I'm sure that was the intention of coming. 
My brothers and sisters, what an amazing illustration of the God, the creator, our father of the Bible. He is a, as we sang, a good, good father. One who delights in all that he has made, every last granular of sand on the beach, but he also, for those who are his own, those, if you're here this morning and your hope and trust is in Jesus Christ and what he has done on your behalf, his delight is in you. And because of his resurrection, as we also sang about, that means that the truest thing about you this morning you are in Jesus Christ is that he as the one who is now in the process of recreation he the one who is powerful enough to speak the cosmos into existence uses his voice to sing over you as Zephaniah says that Jesus now speaks and sings blessing over you as his own as he sang at the beginning of creation. And he does so because he delights in you, his daughter. You, his son. Believe that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are amazed uh we we even though it seemed like an extended reading at the end of the day it's pretty it's a pretty quick (laughs) few verses to see so much of your power at work so being reacquainted with your power and your your sovereignty over all creation is (laughs) it's a startling thing Father, I pray that we would be even more startled by the fact that because of what Jesus has done on the cross and through his resurrection, that those now, those of us who have placed our hope and trust in Jesus, we now have a heavenly Father, the Creator, who looks at us as children and takes great delight in. Help us to believe that, but possibly for the very first time this morning, or perhaps for the hundredth time. But help us to believe that, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.